Welcome to the Wellsteading Podcast. This is episode 96. It's March 19th, 2015. I'm your host, John Pugliano. I'm also the founder and money manager at investablewealth.com. Well, let me start out by saying that I think today's episode is going to be extremely interesting and relevant to you. And actually, I think it's probably going to be the best podcast I have ever done in terms of just sheer content and what it means to you and illustrating wealth building principles in light of current events and particularly the way they relate to the Federal Reserve, to the stock market, and then the way academics and the elite think about things and the policies that they create, which ultimately have a, a deleterious effect on the middle class. But more importantly than all that, I also want to talk about what you can do about it, how you can inoculate yourself from the madness that goes on with the banking system and Federal Reserve policy and the national debt and all those kind of things so that you can in effect insulate yourself from these problems and you can have a successful life building your net worth, more importantly, building your personal freedom. Well, hey, let me also start off by by saying that I caught an error in the numbering system in our episodes. The previous episode, which should have been episode 95, that was the one that was entitled The Value of a Stay-at-Home Spouse. It originally went out as episode 94. When I recorded the podcast, I accurately stated that it was episode 95, and I gave the date, which I believe was March 12th. But when I did the show notes for it, I inadvertently marked it as episode 94. So I went back and changed that. But what really complicates things is today when I put out a blog over at my firm's website, which is investablewealth.com, and the purpose of that blog was to address what the Federal Reserve said yesterday in their press conference. But what I inadvertently did in those notes was to tell people to make sure they listen to today's episode, which is episode 96. But because my numbering system was messed up, I actually told them to listen to episode 95. I corrected that. And so in any case, if I confused you, I'm sorry for that. I do want to point out that obviously you don't have to be good with numbers to still be a successful investor in the stock market. Well, hey, let's jump right into today's topic, and that's where I not only want to talk about what the Federal Reserve said yesterday in their open market press conference, I want to talk a little bit about how the market reacted to that, and then to illustrate a point, I'm going to use a recent quote from Professor Robert Schiller, and he's a Nobel laureate. I'll use a quote from him to illustrate how the academics and the politicians and, and how the elites and the bureaucrats, what's really going on in their mind, how they process information, and then how that has a bad effect on us in the middle class. I'll also talk about how we can counteract some of that. Now, as I mentioned, I think this is going to be one of the most important podcasts that I've ever put out in terms of content. If you understand what I'm talking about today, it'll really help you in your wealth building skills and your ability to be a better investor. So what you might want to do with this podcast is share it with your friends and family. Now, I don't know if you've noticed them, but if you go over to the podcast website, wealthsteading.com, where you see the show notes for every episode, at the bottom of each of those pages, there are share buttons where you can share things on social media like Twitter or Facebook. I'd really appreciate if you share this episode. Now, you can use those buttons. You can cut and paste the link to this website and just put it in your own feed. Or if you want to do your own blog post or make your own comments in Facebook and then refer people back here or through the iTunes store, I don't care how you do it, but I really would like to get this message out and I'd like people that are uninformed or people that are confused to hear this podcast because I really do think it's going to make a difference. 
Now, I'm going to try and talk at a high level because I don't want to confuse any new listeners that may be hearing this podcast for the first time. So bear with me. I'll try not to go too slow, and I'll try not to drag this podcast out any longer than it has to be. Well, as I think most of you are aware, yesterday, that would be March 18th, 2015, the Federal Reserve had their regularly scheduled open market meeting. It was held on Tuesday and Wednesday. And then Wednesday afternoon, at the conclusion of their meeting, they always hold a press conference. If you remember back, I don't remember if it was last episode or the episode before that, I told you what was pretty much going to happen this week. I also highlighted it in a blog article over at investablewealth.com. That article was entitled, Good News is Bad News, S&P Drops Below Its 50-Day Moving Average. Now, I pointed out in that article exactly what was going to happen this week. I mentioned that this is kind of a four-step process that's occurred over and over again for the last, I don't know, nine years or so. It's a, def it's a definite pattern that we see with the Federal Reserve, whether it's Janet Yellen that is the chairwoman or Ben Bernanke that was the, the uh, chairman prior to her. And what's happened time and again as we've supposedly recovered from this great recession of, of 2008, what we see happening is, is anytime there's a sign of improvement in the economy, and this will happen either because jobs numbers are showing such good improvement or there's really good consumer or retail sales. Well, whenever we see that kind of good news in the economy, Wall Street starts to panic because they, they're fearful that the Federal Reserve will raise interest rates. And so the guys on Wall Street have a little hissy fit. This happens usually about two weeks before the Federal Reserve meets. And this played out over the last two weeks or so, if you remember what happened in the market. And then the third step is the Federal Reserve, they hold their meeting, they come out, they say everything's wonderful, we're going to keep rates low, and then the markets bounce up and they go on to make all new highs. Well, that's once again, that's pretty much played out. That's what we've seen so far this week. The S&P 500 yesterday was up over 1.2%. It was up in heavy volume, above average volume, and that occurred right, along, right around 2 o'clock Eastern time as Janet Yellen was making her comments. The market was so optimistic that late in the day and, and going into the close, the, the dollar actually came down quite a bit. I believe it came down uh, well over 1%. Oil was actually up about 5%. It closed the day up 5%. I think that was maybe the most volatile or the highest single uh, day move up in the price of oil in something like 12 years. Now, a little bit of that glitter has been taken off that gilded reaction to the market Today on Thursday, we've seen the S&P come back down a little bit. Oil has likewise dropped and almost wiped out all the gains of yesterday. Uh, not, not quite a full 5%, but it was down well over 4% today. We're seeing the S&P 500, although it is above its 50-day moving average, it bounced off that yesterday. It's clearly at a support and a resistance level. And this goes back to the highs that were made at the end of this past year, back uh, right around the last week of the year or so. So it's sitting right at that critical point. There's no telling whether it's going to go up or down from here. If we do continue that four-step rope-a-dope process, we very much likely could see the S&P 500 go on to make new highs. But it is a critical point for the S&P 500. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see if it does fall apart from here, even though that would contradict the pattern that has developed over these last nine years or so. But the game is getting old. It's getting worn out. That's why I did pretty much go back to a cash position, um, I don't know, about two weeks ago, week and a half ago. I took profits early in the year. I didn't want to sacrifice all the gains that I had made. And I know sooner or later, this same rope-a-dope circus that keeps getting played out with the Federal Reserve, at some point, it's going to wear off. At some point, the carpet's going to get pulled out from under people and the markets will drop precipitously. I doubted that would take place this week, but I was playing it safe and conservatively. 
As you'll remember, as I mentioned always in previous podcasts, I'm about getting rich slowly. I don't promote get-rich-quick schemes. I don't day trade, but I do move in and out of the market in swing trading fashion. And even if I can only pick up a 2 or 3% gain over a period of a few weeks, that's good enough for me. I'll take my profits, I'll get out, and I'll keep my powder dry, and I'll be ready for the next opportunity. I'm constantly evaluating the risk-reward ratio. And when I think the risk is too great, like I felt it has been in this last week or so, I get out of the market. Now, I will say, while I am concerned about the S&P 500, the chart to me looks like it is at a critical level. We're, we're below that 2100 psychological point. It wouldn't surprise me at all if the index does break it res, breaks its resistance and it goes back down and tests a 50-day line. But I will say the NASDAQ looks much better. The tech stocks have done, have done well this year. In particular, the medical stocks and the biotechs are holding up extremely well. Now, I'm not invested in any of those at this point, but they do have a good chart pattern. Although the volume isn't there, the price points do look very well. And if you are invested in the NASDAQ, well, good for you. Congratulations. It's too risky for me, but it has recovered nicely in the last week and a half to two weeks. Now, let's jump back to Janet Yellen's press conference yesterday and the important takeaway that I think you should glean from her comments. Now, I'm not going to talk about what the media has been fixated on, which is that the Federal Reserve has taken the word patience out of their verbiage and that we're not going to have an interest rate increase in April, but they're leaving the door open for a June one or more likely it may happen in September or surely it'll happen in December before the end of the year. I don't care about any of that. None of that was new. That was all pretty much cooked into the books going into it. That's why it always amazes me that we see so much market fluctuation before and after these meetings when pretty much everybody knows the outcome. It's just a drama that's played out by the media. They always do this. You know, it's, it's, they do this in presidential races as well. Even though statistically there's already a winner determined. I mean, it's called the horse race theory. The press and the media, they know that if, if there isn't a good competition, if you know that a particular horse is going to win every horse race, well, you're never going to watch that race. It isn't going to be exciting to you. It's the same way with a sporting event like the Super Bowl. They always play up these two teams. They want you to think that you're on a, a razor's edge, that it's a real cliffhanger. They want to build up all kinds of drama. If you know that the Cowboys or the Packers or the Steelers or whoever are just going to come in and walk all over the opponent, then less people would be interested in the game. They want to build up that drama. And so the stock market is no different. They know that if you're not excited, that if you're not worried, that if your interest is low, you're not going to tune in. And then consequently, they're not going to be able to sell advertising. So they're always trying to hype things up. The government and Wall Street, well, they're happy to play along with this as well because they too benefit and it serves their needs. Well, here's the point. We knew exactly what she was going to say. And that's why I have that four-point rope-a-dope thing that, that's gone on for all these years. But what she said yesterday, which was unique, is the fact that the Federal Reserve has once again lowered their, their GDP growth estimates. Now, I'm going to talk a little bit about some numbers here. I'm going to quote some percentages. Don't worry about writing it down or memorizing it. If you'll go over to my firm's website where I blog, which is investablewealth.com, under the Observations and Commentary section, you'll see the new post that I put out today. It's entitled, Feds Reduce Growth Forecast Again. So the numbers are there. You don't have to worry about trying to mentally follow them along if you're driving your car or something right now. 
But here's the point. We've been constantly hearing how the economy's improving, the job market's getting better, all the quantitative easing, all the government stimulus, all the deficit spending. All these things have helped to not only stabilize the economy, but to grow it. You know, corporate profits have never been higher. The Dow Jones Industrial, the S&P 500, those indexes that are at all-time record highs, blah, 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 right? You've heard all that. And we've been hearing for years now that, yeah, it's this year, it's this quarter, the, the economy is going to reach escape velocity, it's going to break out. We're not only having a recovery, but we're going to go into better than average growth performance of, you know, 3 and 4% growth. And, and just to illustrate this point, let me give you a quote from almost exactly two years ago. Now, this is from the Congressional Budget Office in February 2013 in regards to GDP growth. That's the gross domestic product. In reference to that growth, the CBO stated that they were projecting 2014 growth to come in at 3.4%. And then going forward, from 2015 through 2018, we would have an average of 3.6% growth. Now you see 3.4% and 3.6%, those are above average growth rates. Since World War II, the U.S. economy, on average, has grown about 3.27%. Now, obviously, the economy hasn't averaged that high of a growth rate in the last 15 years because we've lived through the dot-com bubble, the recession of 2003 with the Iraq War, the devastation of the financial crisis and the major recession in 2008. I think since the early 90s, our economy's only been growing something like 2.7%, and then over the last 15 years, less than that. But in any case, the administration, all the bureaucrats, the bankers, the Federal Reserve, the Congressional Budget Office, everybody's saying, hey, we're going to hit escape velocity, and we're going to see above average growth. We're going to be growing at 3.4 or 3.6%. And they forecasted that two years ago for 2014 and then into 2015 and 2018. Well, they've been walking that back, but yesterday they dramatically reduced it. And in fact, Janet Yellen specifically said that in 2017, she was only projecting GDP growth of 2.2%. Now, in 2014, even though originally they were forecasting like a 3.4% growth rate, we ended up only growing 2.4%. But now the Federal Reserve is telling us that in 2017, instead of seeing growth, we're going to see a decline in the growth rate. We're, we're only going to be growing at 2.2%. Now, think about this. The Federal Reserve has not raised interest rates since 2006. That's nine years ago. Since 2008, when the financial crisis began, we started out when Bush was still in office with an $800 billion stimulus package that did nothing. And then when Obama came into office, they went on to have three rounds of quantitative easing, which increased the balance sheet on the Federal Reserve nearly $4 trillion. It went from about $800 billion to about $4.5 trillion over these past seven years. And then in addition to that, Every year run budget deficits, which have added up to over $9 trillion. So just in looking at what we've spent with government debt and expansion of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet since 2008, we're looking at well over $13 trillion. Now, in taking that out two more years into 2017, when Janet Yellen's talking about, you know we're going to have additional deficit spending between now and then, and we can be pretty sure that the Federal Reserve isn't going to shrink its balance sheet any. In fact, they may even expand it more. Who knows? We might get quantitative easing for. So with all that spending, with over $13 trillion in government and banking intervention, and I can't even try and explain to you what, what $13 trillion is. 
Remember, our whole entire U.S. GDP is only 17 trillion, and I'm talking over 13 trillion just since 2008. 13 trillion is probably something like the value, the market capitalization of the top, I don't know, 120, 150 companies in America. I mean, every brand name, every company you can probably think of, if you added up all their value together, that's probably what 13 trillion dollars comes out to. So the government has, has either deficit spent that or expanded the Federal Reserve's balance sheet with quantitative easing. That's been the kind of intervention we've had on the economy that's going to continue through 2017. And with all that money spent, Janet Yellen, with a straight face, can come out and tell the American people that we can expect only a 2.2% growth rate? Now, the amazing thing is, nobody questioned her about it. Nobody in the press corps and the audience, you know, threw Rotten Tomatoes at her and said, what are you talking about? If that's the best that this country can grow, how can you be so optimistic about the future? How can you continue to throw good money, our hard-earned taxpayers' money, how can you continue to throw that good money after bad money? Why do you keep intervening if the best you can produce after nearly a decade is only a growth rate of 2.2%? I didn't hear anybody say anything like that. But that's certainly the question that I would have asked or I'm sure that you would have asked. But as I said earlier, not only was that kind of questioning not raised, the stock market went up 1.2% in extremely high volume. They're popping bottles of champagne and partying up on Wall Street. They're ecstatic. They're thrilled that the Federal Reserve is going to keep interest rates low because they think that that's going to drive the stock market onto all-time new record highs. And you know what? It may in fact do that. But let's think about the underlying problem. If the economy can only grow at 2.2%, I mean, that is such a sclerotic, anemic, geriatric growth rate. Do you honestly think that corporate America can continue to make historic profits? Do you really believe that this stock market can go on forever making all-time highs without some type of a 15 or a 20 or a 30% pullback and correction? I don't believe it. Now, if, if you've listened to this podcast for any length of time or you've followed my blog posts, you know that I'm not a gloom and doomer. You know that I'm a swing trader. I don't buy and hold for the long term, but I, I'm a firm believer in the United States stock market. That's where I have my money invested. That's where I'm going to continue to trade. But, and this is a big but, this is a big caveat, I don't keep my money in stocks invested 100% of the time. I move it in and out. I go back and forth between buying stocks and then selling them, taking a profit, moving into cash, waiting for the next uptrend, waiting for the next opportunity, and then moving back into the market. Now, for now, I'm going to leave it at that. I'll come back after I play a soundbite for you, and I'll explain the principle, the concept of that a little bit better because I know it's foreign to most people because you've been told all your life to buy and hold. So I'll get back to that. But here's where I want to go with this, because to understand this insanity, you have to understand how the academics and the bureaucrats and the politician, you have to understand how all these elite people think. So I'm going to play a soundbite for you. This is a recent quote from Professor Robert Schiller. Now I'm going to deconstruct what he says. I'm going to point out what I think is, is the absurdity of his comments, and in my opinion, what is just a totally ridiculous statement. Now, having said all that, I have to tell you, I have great respect for Robert Schiller. I think he's a brilliant man. He's a Nobel laureate, and, and I don't respect him just for that alone. I mean, he's a, he's a Yale professor of economics. He's done great work. I've read many of the things he's written. I think of any of the Ivy League economists that I'm aware of, I would tell you I respect him more than any of them. 
I not only admire his academic writings and his achievement there, but I think he also does a very good job of coming out to the common people, to the middle class, and trying to explain things in a rational and in an understandable manner. And I'll tell you, I also think he's a man of very strong character. I think he's honest. I don't think he's a shill for any politicians or for any corporations. Overall, I'd say he's a really stand-up guy. But I'm still going to make fun of this statement, he said, because I think like all academics and, and, and bureaucrats and people that live in these bubbles, they're just so caught up on the menagerie that they can't see the forest for the trees. I mean, they really start believing the party line and the propaganda. So let, let me play what he said, and then I'll come back and give you some commentary. So before I play the soundbite, let me set it up for you. He was asked about the conundrum we're in right now with Americans uh, retiring and being vastly underfunded, with them not having enough savings and income and pension and Social Security and things like that. So that's the essence of the question he was asked. But what I want to focus on is his comments about savings. He mentioned this, uh, I think it was yesterday or the day before, and it was aired on a Bloomberg financial television show. So here it is. The solution can't be for the whole country to save more, because we already are at zero interest rates uh, in real terms. There isn't, you know, an opportunity. If everyone tries to save more, it will just reduce the aggregate demand and put us back into recession. But we, I think having increasing the years of work is a different solution, and it's more, more effective. Okay, now that you heard that, I'm going to play it for you one more time. Listen closely to what he says and pay particular attention, not so much on what he talks about of, you know, with Americans having to work longer, but focus on in the beginning part when he talks about Americans shouldn't be saving because that's going to be a bad thing for the economy and that's going to put us back into a recession. Listen to his words again. The solution can't be for the whole country to save more because we already are at zero interest rates in real terms. There isn't you know, an opportunity. If everyone tries to save more, it will just reduce the aggregate demand and put us back into recession. But we, I think, having increasing the years of work is a different solution, and it's more more effective. Okay. Now, again, to be fair, he wasn't specifically asked about savings. He just made reference to that when he was talking about the conundrum that we're in with with retirement. But let's drill down and think about what he said. He violated a major principle there that you know in your heart is true. And that's about saving. And as listeners of this podcast, you also know that saving is a key element to individuals building their net worth and their wealth. I constantly talk to you about earning and then saving and then being an investor. Professor Schilling is only talking about working longer. He's focusing on the first part of the wealth building equation, which is how to earn a living. Now, that's something we shouldn't be worried about when we're 60 and 70 and 80 years old. We live in one of the most prosperous periods in the history of humanity. We shouldn't be broke when we're 60, 70, and 80 years old. We shouldn't have to work unless we want to. Now, I don't want to dwell on that, though. The important thing I want to point out is his comment that Americans shouldn't be saving more. Schiller is rationalizing a very academic point that savings is bad for the economy, that it would put us into recession because interest rates are already at zero, that we're basically a wash in cash, and it would be futile and senseless for Americans to save more. Now, again, from an academic standpoint, people could probably argue that. 
I would imagine that most viewers that heard him say that on that Bloomberg episode didn't even think twice about it. Everybody just nods their head and accepts that. But think about the premise. And again, I'm, I'm not pointing this out because I think Schiller doesn't know what he's talking about or that he's a shill or that he's an evil person. I think he's a brilliant man. I think he's just so caught up in the Keynesian culture that he's missing the point. And for those of you that haven't figured out yet what I'm talking about, let me point out the flaw in his logic. And again, I haven't seen any criticism on the Internet about what he said. This is similar to what he said before. I've never heard anybody question him. But if I was there, if he was in front of me, what I would point out to the distinguished professor is that he has circular logic or circular reasoning. You see, it is true that interest rates are at an all-time low. The low interest rates that we have right now is not because the American public or American senior citizens in particular have a high savings rate, that they're under-consuming and that their savings rate is too high and they're plowing all this money into the banks and into the Federal Reserve and buying government treasuries and that that's what's pulling down the interest rate. You see, that's not the case at all. The reason we have historic low interest rates is what I talked about at the beginning of this episode when I talked about that $4 trillion expansion of the Federal Reserve's balance sheet since 2008. The three rounds of quantitative easing that we have. That's why we have historically low interest rates. That's why it doesn't benefit old people to put their money into savings. That's why if American citizens increase their savings rate, then yes, it probably would create some more stagnation and it would hurt the economy because consumption would go down even farther and it would put us into a recession. But why is all that taking place? It's not the fact that people are saving too much. It's the fact that the Federal Reserve has intervened too much and has printed up about $4 trillion of artificial money. That's the problem. And this is the key takeaway, and this is hopefully the message that you're going to share with your friends and your relatives. Whenever the governments or bureaucrats or bankers or academics, whenever they come in with some type of intervention and create a policy or enact a law or interject money into the economy, we get all kinds of unintended consequences. It's always the case that when the elite come in and create a solution, that solution becomes the middle class's next problem. This continually happens over and over again. This is what Robert Schiller is overlooking with the status of our crony uh, capitalist and, and Keynesian economy. All this intervention is not creating a solution. It's just creating another big problem. And he perfectly states the problem. The elites know that if the American people do the right thing, which would be to build up their net worth and their assets by saving, that that would be the wrong thing, that that would further hurt the economy. And so that's why they don't encourage it. That's why they create policies where they make it difficult for you to build and accumulate wealth. That's their circular reasoning. And that's what it's so important for you to understand. Because you're never going to become wealthy or financially independent if you're living paycheck to paycheck and you're working until you're 70 or 80 years old just to pay the bills, just to pay off the mortgage. You can only become financially independent and wealthy by increasing your net worth. And that means following the wealth building principles, the wealth building steps. Number one, becoming an earner, getting a job or creating a company or a business where you can make an above average income. And then number two, becoming a disciplined saver, learning to structure your life and have a lifestyle where you consume significantly less than what you produce in income. And then the third step, is once you've become educated and you've developed wisdom and maturity, you take that surplus capital that you've saved and you learn to create an investment income from it. 
You can only become wealthy by following those three steps in that order. And the elites don't want you to ever get past step one. That's the sad fact of the world that we live in. And that's the bad news. But here's the good news. And this is the concept that I want to close this podcast out on because I want you to keep it in the top of your mind. And I want you to take this theory or this concept or this new ideal and figure out ways that you can apply it in your life so that you can build your wealth, so that you can improve your situation, so that you can help your family, your friends, your neighborhood, and your community, so that you can take charge of your life and take charge of your freedom. Here's what you need to understand. Although all these elites are telling you one thing, what you need to do is ignore them and do the other. Let them convince everybody else that they should spend their money, that they could, that they should consume, that that's what's going to help us get out of this quagmire that we're in. But you don't buy it. You ignore their advice. You buckle down. You find a way to live those three well-steading, wealth-building principles. Number one, develop an above-average income. Number two, become a disciplined saver. Number three, develop an investment income. Depending upon where you are right now in your life, you probably need to focus on steps one and two. Time is getting short. It's not good enough to just focus on step number one. Yes, you have to earn that income. Yes, it should be above average. But it's always a good time to start being a disciplined saver. Focus on that. Don't let Wall Street or Madison Avenue or anybody else talk you into parting with your hard-earned money. Figure out ways to save it. Figure out ways to reduce your consumption. Focus on putting away money. Right now, don't worry about investing it. Just focus on saving it. Now, for those of you that are farther along in your wealth building process, maybe you're older, maybe you're more mature, and you have a significant savings built up, you have a significant nest egg, I'd advise you, get educated, be cautious. Right now, the stock market, these indexes, they are at record highs. They could go on to make new record highs. I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. I don't know what's going to happen next week. But I'll tell you this. Simple reasoning tells me that if the chairwoman of the Federal Reserve came out yesterday and told us that after spending $13 trillion to prop up this economy, that the best growth that we can hope to attain in 2017 is only 2.2%, if that's the best we can do, then how can this stock market continue to make all-time highs? Now that is a riddle that I just can't explain. I got to believe that at some point this house of cards is going to collapse. I'm not saying to go bury your money in the backyard. I'm not saying to run out and stock up on gold or precious metals. I think that we're going to continue to see corrections not only in the stock market, but also in commodities like gold and silver, like oil. The global economy remains in a malaise. We see a slowdown in economies throughout the world. I'll talk more about that in some upcoming episodes. But we don't need to be ostriches. We don't need to go bare heads in the sand. We need to look for opportunities in the market. When we see trends where the U.S. stock market or the German stock market or the Japanese stock market, when they're going up, we want to participate, but we want to be ready to pull the trigger and get out when those markets hit resistance. Likewise, the same thing with commodities. And we not only want to play long positions, we, if we're savvy enough, if we're smart enough investors, we want to take short positions. If they're available to you, you want to think about using inverse exchange traded funds. Now, in this podcast, I never offer specific or direct advice or recommendations. I'm only speaking in educational terms, things that you should be learning about as an individual investor. 
This is going to be the only way that you're going to be able to preserve your wealth in these upcoming months and years. The turbulence is going to continue. We're not out of the woods yet. We have to be vigilant and always ready to protect our capital. If you don't know how to do it yourself, then you should seriously consider hiring a professional to do it for you. Or for many of you, the best thing that you can do is to not invest at all. Just be a saver. Put your money away, build up that nest egg, save it in a good secure place, like a bank account that's protected with FDIC insurance, or a certificate of deposit from a reliable bank or credit union. Or if the money's in your 401k, think about moving to a money market fund or a short-term government bond fund like 90-day treasuries. These are safe places to park your money. That's where you should have your money if you don't know what you're doing as an investor or if you can't afford to hire a good one. Don't let Wall Street convince you that you should be investing in things that you don't know about or that you should be taking undue risks. Now again, I don't have a crystal ball. I don't know when we're going to have another correction or another setback. I will continue to invest in the stock market. I will continue to take long and short positions. And I will continue to be very cautious and to be ready to move into cash at a second's notice. Remember, the chairwoman of the Federal Reserve is telling you that the best that we're going to see from this economy in 2017 is a measly, anemic 2.2% growth. That should be concerning to you. You should ponder that and use that as a filter for everything else you hear played out in the media and from the financial industry over these coming weeks and months. Don't let them deceive you. Listen, I don't want to preach to you. You can tell I'm passionate about this. I'm just worried about so many amateurs out there that are believing all this hype. We've seen a good run-up in the stock market over these last six years. Many people are overconfident. They think that this bull market's going to run forever, and it's not. At some point, we'll have some stagnation. We'll have some pullbacks. We'll have corrections. We'll have recessions. I don't want you to get caught between a rock and a hard place. What I've learned over my 30 years of investing is that it's not only important to be actively trading in the stock market and taking profits, but what's more important is avoiding the losses. What's critical is that when the market collapses, like in 2000 when we had the internet bubble, what's important is that you don't participate in that. What's important is when we have a financial crisis like in 2008 that you've gone to a safe haven like cash or a money market fund and you're not experiencing a 48% drawdown in your 401k. Those are the critical pain points that you need to avoid if you want to build your wealth. So you're better off taking small incremental gains from week to week and month to month and being cautious to avoid those major pitfalls because after the markets fall apart, they always recover. And that's when you want to have the cash to be able to buy back in and take advantage of the eventual uptrend. That's how you'll exponentially grow your wealth. That's how you can turn that nest egg into a goose that lays golden eggs. That's how you can retire comfortably and live a well-setting lifestyle where you're financially independent and you're in charge of your own destiny. Well, as always, thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can contact me at the website, which is wealthsteading.com. I have a number of listener questions that I haven't answered yet. I've been accumulating and consolidating those. I'm going to try either in the next episode or the following episode to answering those questions. So until we meet again, this is John Pugliano wishing you the very best of returns.